Welcome to the Softland Central Podcast, your home for market entry knowledge and resources. Softland Central is brought to you by Softland Partners, an online marketplace to help you find best fit resources for your market entry. Find them at softlandpartners.com. Well, hi, and welcome to the next episode of Softland Central. So today we're focused on U.S. immigration and getting an update. Uh, we're here with a U.S. immigration expert, Tamina Watson from Watson Immigration. Tamina, welcome. Thank you so much, Bill, for having me. I'm so honored. Oh, gosh, it's our pleasure for sure. So what I'd like to do, well, I'd love to get just a little of your background here. Also, you've written a couple of books, just kind of if we can hit that briefly, and then we'll hop into the immigration update and, and give our audience of international business owners and trade and investment professionals a little bit of a sense of kind of where the opportunities are for U.S. immigration. But before we do that, do you mind just giving a little bit of a, a self-introduction and, and also, if you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit about your books. Yeah, well, thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, I am a British transplant in America. I went through the entire immigration process to get my green card and then my citizenship. I have my own law firm, immigration law firm. So the personal experience really helps understand my clients' problems. I've been in practice since 2009, and my primary focus is business immigration, helping businesses, individuals, investors find ways to come to the United States as smoothly and efficiently under the circumstances as possible. Um, I'm in Seattle, Washington, uh, and my clients are all over the world. You know, they're sometimes in Seattle, but they could be anywhere in the country or any part of the universe, actually. And uh, in, interestingly enough, with COVID, the uh, communication has broadened. So it's actually much more acceptable to speak with people over Zoom, whereas before COVID, Skype would be the one that I would use primarily. In terms of books, um, I am a big proponent for U.S. immigration reform here in the United States. I uh, have written two books. One is called Legal Heroes, uh, and it's about lawyers who stepped up in the last four years to protect the rule of law and vulnerable people. The second book is called uh, The Startup Visa. This was actually my first book written in 2015, and it advocates for a visa category for entrepreneurs to come to the U.S who are venture-backed or have investments or revenue, uh, and they should have a pathway to be here. Uh, the current visa system is not squarely for the modern-day startup founder, so that's why I wrote the book. And the second edition is coming out on July 20th, and I would love for people to read it. It is actually really good for anybody listening because it goes through all the visa categories. And while I talk about the problems for founders in those categories, you can use those examples to make sure your case is as strong as it can be. There is a podcast series to go with the book called The Startup Visa, and the podcast is called Tamina Talks Immigration. Fantastic. Thanks, Tamina. And so it, it, talking about the startup uh, visa, it, you know, it's certainly there are other countries that have a, a startup visa, and, um, and certainly with your activism and, and others, um, you, the U.S. continues to sort of uh, dance around uh, that kind of a program. What, what um, I guess if we look um, at a roadmap to getting a startup visa in the U.S., do you see a pathway? Do you, I mean, sort of a reasonable pathway and, and movement towards a startup visa? Can you give us maybe, maybe it's a good place to start our update. What do you see sure. in, in the landscape for a startup visa? 
for for a visa itself, uh, I think given the administration that we are in and the time in history that we're in, I think there's momentum. So my hope is that the book could revive a conversation and a movement. But the, the concept of a startup visa in the US started in 2009. And there is historic information in the book that people would be interested in, where some venture capitalists came together and realized that we need a founder's visa. Um, and so since 2009, there have been various iterations of bills, but they really never made it uh, into law. So the hope is that the momentum that we're writing in now could potentially bring us uh, a startup visa. But talking about updates, we have the second best thing, uh, and it's called the entrepreneur parole. Uh, and parole is a word that people don't necessarily like, but it means permission. And it's international entrepreneur rule, which was um, created by the Obama administration, but sort of um, dimmed by the previous administration, all but killed, and then revived again by this administration at and it is actually actively able, um, ready to use. And I have, uh, I'm a columnist with Above the Law and Entrepreneur magazine. And so there are some articles that people can read. But essentially, entrepreneurs who are backed by US um, investors, venture capitalists, angel investors, or accelerators in the amount of $250,000 can actually get permission to come to the US uh, for two and a half years initially, and then extend it for another two and a half years. And so it's not a visa, it's not the startup visa that we wanted that gave permanence in the black and white letter of the law, but it's the second best thing that allows people to actually get here. And it's taken all these years since 2009 to get to this point. So I would love for people to explore this option and put it into their toolkit when they are looking at their options to move here. Well, and $200,000 isn't much investment. So it's U.S. investors. And did you say also if they're in an accelerator that I would imagine has a similar uh, investment cap? Yes, it's about it's two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and it could be yeah. uh, it could be a, a venture capitalist or an angel or an accelerator or a combination. Mm. Often these startup founders are you know bringing money from different sources, and it could all add up. The other option is in the U.S. there are often international students. They are at universities. They make cohorts of um, startups, and inevitably one of them is an international founder. And in the student sort of grouping, if you like, if you have received a $100,000 grant or award from a federal, state, or city um, government, you can actually use the $100,000 as the reason or the foundation for this. So mm -hmm. it depends on where you have raised the money and how, uh, but that could be the, the seed to getting the permission you need to be here. Wow, that's incredible. And, um, and is that um, uh, something that you see uh, many uh, people taking advantage of? Is it uh, fairly uh, new in terms of uh, the momentum there? What, what are you seeing in terms of uh, people using it? It's brand new. It's brand new, mm. meaning so new that whether new applications have been filed or not, I don't know. We're mm. in the process of filing some. But when this rule was um, established in 2017, 
we recently learned 30 of them were filed and only one was approved only because of the litigation that happened during the Trump era. There's an organization called National Venture Capital Association and they took the lead in litigating this issue. Um, and that's how this rule really still survives and now is revived. And so the reason this is so important is the immigration laws that we are bound by in this country are from the 1950s and 60s. Laws have not changed, but as you know, Bill, the world has changed immensely in the way it practices business uh, businesses, how globalization has made everything smaller. You could be running a million dollar business in Timbuktu from your basement. You don't need to be in the US, but the US is where people really want to be. Because if you are here, you have access to the large consumer base we have, the large, um, investor group, we have the resources. And so America hasn't necessarily caught up yet. We're fighting for it to be done. But this is an example of we're moving in the right direction. Mm, fantastic. No, it's great. It's great to hear of. And I, I wasn't aware of that, that program. So that's wonderful. So um, and, and that's one of the really nice things about the the entrepreneur uh, parole is that uh, it's it, it's a very low bar. I mean, relatively speaking, from an investment standpoint, um, do you want to maybe give us an update on other opportunities that are sort of current for uh, entrepreneurs who are, are looking to come into the U.S.? Sure. So. The, the visa categories that people generally use, it could be one of several. L1s, if they have um, businesses abroad and they're you know, opening a branch here, that's a great visa category for those who qualify. Um, E2, if they are investing their own funds and own at least 51% of their company. Um, O's can sometimes work, but not necessarily if you are the sole proprietor, you need to show you're an employee. And then H-1Bs also can work, but there are a number of difficulties with that visa, but they can work for the right person. Again, my book will explain the good and the bad and, and what they can use. And so I highly recommend people read it. But what are the challenges we're seeing right now? COVID has really brought some immense challenges because for most of these visas, if you're not in the United States and you have had an approval, you have to go to the embassies to get a visa stamp to come in. Mm. Now, for the Schengen countries, um, I want to make sure people know I have a bi-weekly column on Above the Law. It's a national publication, legal publication, and I write about the things that are happening in real time, uh, telling, reporting on what's going on and uh, um, suggesting solutions. But one of the articles is called Country Ban versus Visa Ban. Because in the last four years, we'd seen many different types of bans, visas and country bans. And as President Biden came into office, some bans have been lifted, but others have not. What we're really playing with at the moment are the country bans. So if you're from Europe, India, South um, Africa or Brazil, you have extra challenges of getting into the US. Um, and so where you come from is the first question I would be asking about how do we solve your problem? You might actually have an approval already and you're not simply able to get the visa. The second thing that's happening is embassies around the globe, US embassies are actually closed. They have reopened to some extent, but they're open for a fraction of the time that they normally operate. What that means is people only with emergencies are getting appointments, but even then it's difficult. Um, and so you have to then assess, 
is that embassy the one you want to go to? Can you quote unquote embassy shop? Can you go to a third country? Now, the difficulty with the third country is basically the same. A, is that country going to let you in, depending on where you're from? And is that embassy going to take you in? Do they have slots for third countries? So there are a number of uh, challenges that we're seeing at the moment. But one um, tip to take away is that you may have a direct prevention from coming into the US. Let's say you're from Switzerland. Let's take that as an example. And to for these countries that have the special bans, you can get something called, called a national interest exception. Again, the articles I've written will give you some guidance, but the national interest exception is to basically say, hey, I fit into one of these categories, such as education, manufacturing, health, um, and therefore you should let me into the US because my entry is in the interest of the nation. Now, those are very difficult to get. A, if you can get you, the general process, depending on the embassy, generally you would send an email with the explanation of why your entry is in the national interest. But some embassies are looking at them pretty quickly. Some embassies are not. Some embassies are taking 30 days or 60 days. You as a business owner have time sensitive issues to deal with. You cannot often wait for 60 days. So um, one possible solution is to see which country will let you in directly. So a lot of my UK clients, for example, are going directly to Mexico. Um, they're quarantining there for about 14 days and then coming into the US because they're not current, uh, you know, directly coming from the UK. Um, you know, that comes with a lot of cost benefit analysis because you can't necessarily just go to a beach and hang out if you can afford it even. Um, and so you've got to really look at several things to consider before you make those decisions. I have a client here where we needed to have some US personnel go to Europe and some European personnel come to the US. And I have to tell you the head scratching that we had to do for both this you know, inbound and outbound was, was not fun, but I think we've gotten through that hump. And so for your listeners who are managing businesses, who are operating businesses need to come into the US, where you are located is important, which passport you hold is important, and which country you can go to directly uh, is important for you to know. That makes a lot of sense. So there, there are really some uh, some good options, uh, and particularly the, the even better options for those that have the flexibility to uh, go to a third country if needed to uh, go through whatever uh, waiting period to uh, to come into the U.S. Um, maybe we could talk for a few minutes around kind of looking ahead the future and. You know, none of us has the crystal ball, and obviously, politics uh, in the in the U.S. has has been uh, hard to predict at best. Uh, but you know, if you looked ahead and, and you put on maybe your your a little bit optimist hat for a moment and said, you know, you know, what is you know, if we looked ahead maybe the next two, you know, three four years, what what do you see the immigration landscape being like? What do you what? How do you think will evolve if you had your best guess? Well, I think my hope is what I really, truly hope, and I hope for this every day, because every single client I speak to on a daily basis needs to see reform for their cases. My hope would be that we would have 
sensible immigration reform. Now, we are in a moment in history where we have um, a timeline. You know, in this country, for those who are not in the US, there's sort of like an election cycle, if you like. And as a Brit trans, uh, transplant, I had to learn all of this uh, because immigration became so important. I didn't realize how closely it is intertwined with politics. It took a lot of learning. But this election cycle dominates what happens to policy, you know. And so now that we've recently got this new administration and we have Congress that is Democrat in the House and Democrat in the Senate, um, there is an opportunity. And I think we have that until probably mid next year to see what we can do. And currently there are bills being considered in Congress. So there's hope. So with my optimistic hat, I would like to see immigration reform, but I would also like to see the administration being progressive and bold and creating policies that can transcend uh, administrations. What we saw in the last four years is that the administration really bypassed Congress at every opportunity. And at every opportunity, they used regulatory means, sometimes even just executive orders, legally or illegally, to change the policies to fit their mission. And I think if we are able to put solid regulations and policies in place that are difficult to reverse, then I think we have some lasting sustainable um, changes. The other thing I really want to emphasize is we need to have organizational societal infrastructure that is not necessarily reliant on government. It's the nonprofits, the service organizations, where we need to really put in place the mechanisms and structures to withstand um, adverse policies that could come from future administrations. And I think with the last four years, what is very clear to me is that there could be administrations that take those policies further. And so if we're not working as a team, meaning government, executive and the people, we, we will not necessarily be, be prepared for things that we don't necessarily want to see. Hmm. No, that makes that makes sense. And, you know, it's, it's uh, always interesting to sort of think about the, um, the immigration opportunities and, and um, you know, again, our audience are our founders or executives of companies who are looking to bring um, either themselves come into the U.S. or bring team members in. Um, you know, the one thing that that we've, I guess, have learned at Softland Partners is, you know, is that um, it's important and we try to uh, represent this every day. It's important that those not in the U.S. understand that our doors are wide open. Whatever, who's ever in power, whatever government we have, um, the the people of the United States welcome uh, people from every shore. And, um, you know, I guess the, um, do you have thoughts about that in, in terms Absolutely. of, uh, you know, it's just, it just seems so important uh, that, that that word get out uh, to me anyway. I agree. Well, I have two points to make. Number one, I'm going to ask people to listen to the podcast series called Startup Visa on my podcast because I'm, I really interviewed the thought leaders about why a startup visa is needed, what immigrants have done to contribute to, um, the, to America as a whole. And one of the, there are only three that have been released so far, but there are 12 in the series. And they are, you know, venture capitalists, there are founders, they're, they're, anybody listening will relate to at least one or two of them. 
but one of them is the founder of Startup Without Borders, who is in Europe. And what's really important about her um, interview is for people to understand humans are humans no matter where they are. And they can contribute to America if they're here, but they will contribute to wherever they are. And so she talks about the refugees in the slums of Egypt or somewhere in Jordan, and they are developing groundbreaking, um, life-changing tools and innovation that is truly making a difference. If they're not going to do it in the U.S., they'll do it wherever they are. So as human beings, we should be welcoming humans no matter what. Why is it important to America? We all contribute. If you think about the history of America, from Jamestown to Silicon Valley, immigrants, Jamestown, you know, people who were persecuted from Britain came here, started with the tobacco uh, industry. And here we are, you know, fast forward the clock to New York becoming the vertical city as it is, because Andrew Carnegie, a Scottish immigrant, created a steel that was easily manufactured to, you know, Disneyland. Walt Disney is a second generation immigrant. What's happened in America is history is not necessarily remembered properly. Going back to my book, The Startup Visa, there is history that's mentioned there. Bose, Levi's, Facebook, WhatsApp. WhatsApp was founded by immigrants, you know, brought, you know, bought by Facebook. No matter what aspect of your life you look at, immigrants have created something of that, in that, many, many times over. So I think the message is that humans are humans. We're, gonna, we're going to really add to wherever we live. Let's make it America. And for American um, people in general, you know, I used to live in Bangladesh, where my parents are from as a little girl. And I just remember, you know, Bangladesh is a country prone to cyclones and, you know, rain and flood. And a lot of time aid would come from America. And I remember thinking, wow, the American people are so generous. And that thought has never really left me. The American people are generally good people. And I, but the policies are not always reflective of it. But as a country, if we can just remember that Lady Liberty was there, you know, put as a beacon of hope for the American dream. And we can all have that. If all, you know, if all, if all of us do well, we all do well. It's uh, absolutely true. No, and uh, yeah, it, it, economic independence is um, amazingly liberating. Whether, whether, whether I, in my mind, it's important to create that whatever country somebody is in, uh, that economic independence creates a, uh, a, a better world for all of us. Um, well, Tamina, it's just been delightful and fantastic and very informative. Um, I really appreciate your time and, and you taking the time to uh, share uh, your great wisdom with our audience. Is there a, a parting thought, something you want to encourage people to do over the coming uh, weeks or months? Well, I would first say thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I'd say those of you who are striving to make the world a better place, keep doing that. And if America is the place that you end up in, I'd love to help you. But you don't have to make a difference in America. You can make it anywhere in the world. Brilliant. Cool. Well, thank you again, Tamina. Thank you to our audience. Please uh, like and subscribe. Uh, so you can stay up to date with our next uh, episodes. And uh, it's, it was great to be with you all today. Thank you, Tamina. Thank you so much.